So your concern was both for her, but also for the baby. Yeah. And I, I, I remember at some point I just kind of asked, I uh, asked one of the officers that was standing there, is she going to be okay? And he's kind of looked at me and said, she's, you know, she's dead, but we're going to get her body to the hospital and save the baby. And I'm just kind of like, what? Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My guest today is a relationship coach and the expert on widower relationships. As a remarried widower, he has successfully helped thousands of widowers and the women who date them know if they're ready to open their hearts to a new relationship. He is the author of seven books, four widower relationship guides, two novels, and a memoir about losing his late wife to suicide and falling in love again. He is also an avid runner. He and his wife, Juliana, live in the beautiful state of Utah and as citizens of the Beehive State are parents of the requisite seven children. I am pleased to introduce Abel Keough. Abel, are you ready to share your story of hope? Yes, I am ready. Awesome. So you say you're an avid runner. When did that start? Um, That started actually 19 years ago. Really? It was 2000 and I was kind of fat and overweight and I got tired of it. So I just started running and I haven't stopped. So I have to ask, as a person who's never enjoyed running, what is it that you enjoy about running? I think it's a mental thing at this point. It's something about just going out there and releasing energy and, you know, it wakes me up, it gets me going. It's basically the first thing I do in the morning. So I'm up and I'm, you know, putting on the uh, running shoes and I'm out the door. It just makes me think better. I would say it's not just running. I think anyone in any kind of exercise. So if, if, if you don't like running, it's fine. I, I know people that go biking or you right. know, lift weights or do something like that. It's just, it's just that same kind of thing. I think it's putting your body and your mind in the place that it needs to be to start the day. At least that's how it is with me. That is awesome. So we're going to dive back into your story a little bit. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your wife, Krista? Uh, I married my wife, Krista. On a cold, freezing day in uh, December 1998. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was I don't remember being cold, but everybody else says it was really cold that day. <laughs> You're probably too happy and smiling to remember yeah. the cold. <laughs> so I rem- remember the day really good. And uh, we had known each other for a long time. We kind of grew up together, uh, but really didn't start dating until we were both in college. And just kind of hit things off. And, uh, yeah, we got married and uh, started a wonderful life together. Wonderful. Now, you talk in your book, uh, Room for Two, that you noticed that things began to change with her when you found out you were expecting a baby. Why don't you talk me through that? We found out she was expecting, I want to say about May or June of 2001. Everybody was happy. Everybody was excited. And, you know, we were excited to be parents. But as the pregnancy progressed, um, her attitude and her mood changed. You know, if you know Krista, she was this person who was always happy. She was, you know, mm-hmm. very vivacious, very outgoing. Um, if she was in a room with you in 60 seconds, you'd feel like she was your best friend. I mean, that's just the kind of personality she had. Mm-hmm. Um, always, always positive, always upbeat. And then I'd say probably maybe four months into it, things really just slowly started to uh, change. She didn't be, she, she wasn't as happy. She became a little more um, sad and just kind of depressed about 
just everything. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like one thing. It was just life in general. Mm. And how did this affect your marriage? Um, I, it was it, it was really hard. Um, so I was uh, I had an hour long commute at the time, and so you know I'd leave early, I'd go to work, um, and I'd come back, and you know it was basically ten hours uh, from the time I left, and I'd just come home. And sometimes she wasn't even home. Sometimes she had gone to her grandmother's place or something like that, and you know it was just this. It was it was really tough because I didn't know what was going on with her, mm-hmm. um, and it was weird because you know I brought it, I'd bring it up at work right and mm-hmm. I'd say you know and, or you know like somebody would say hey how's the you know how's your wife doing how's the pregnancy doing and I'd say oh she's acting really weird you know mm-hmm. she's just not herself and you know they'd kind of laugh it off and say well my wife was all weird when she was pregnant too mm-hmm. so I was just assuming it was you know I don't know this is how women were when they're pregnant I right. you know I didn't have any context for this. And so I thought, I can't wait till she has the baby. You know, right. I, was like, I was like, okay, you know, I can just hold on until she has the baby and then things will get better kind of thing. That was kind of my, that was kind of my attitude at the time. And I just kind of figured if I could just kind of push through it, um, you know, she'd have the baby and we'd go back to normal. Right, right. And then in one day, everything changed. Yeah. So we had, um, um, we had spent the night at her uh, grandmother's house and we had just moved into um, a new apartment. Um, it was probably a 20 minute drive up, uh, away. And so I got up early and, you know, there's just some errands that needed to be done. And I knew that she really wasn't, didn't want to run errands. So I just kind of told her, I'm going to go run these errands. Um, I'll come back in a couple hours and, you know, let's, you know, let's pack up our stuff and go to the apartment for the rest of the day. And she kind of agreed to that. And so I went and ran the errands and came back, I don't know, two hours later or so. And she was gone and she wasn't there. And I knew she had, I just kind of instinctively knew she was at our apartment, mm-hmm. which I thought was weird because I thought we had agreed to, you know, kind of go over together. And so um, I kept calling and at first she answered the phone and, you know, I was like, hey, you know, and she kept telling me not to come over. It was just kind of like, like these really weird conversations. And mm. at some point it turned into a fight where we were just kind of yelling at each other and, you know, kind of slammed down the phone and said, well, I'm coming over and slammed down the phone and started heading over to the apartment. Yeah. Wow. So you wasn't you weren't sure if she was going to be happy to see you or yeah, unhappy I did, to see it, you. Again, it was just weird behavior. You know, it's like, yeah. well, why are you there? And, you know, and why are you, do you not want me to come over? And so anyway, I drove to the apartment. Um, and as soon as I arrived at the apartment, I just had this feeling that something was wrong. Like, the you know, it's the middle of the day. It's whatever, one, two in the afternoon. The blinds are drawn. There's no lights on. You know, it's just something's just not right. But mm-hmm. I can see her car kind of parked off to the side. And so anyway, I, you know, I kind of try to calm down a little bit. I was fuming at the whole drive over there. I'm just mm-hmm. fuming. I'm just mad. And um, I try to calm down a little bit. So hopefully we're not going to fight as soon as we as soon as I get in the apartment. And um, and I kind of, you know, I open the door to the apartment and dark and quiet there's nothing you know it's very again very weird and um um, i call out her name and that's when i hear a gunshot from the bedroom oh my gosh what was going through your mind when you heard that gunshot i was thinking i i don't i mean i just didn't know what i you know i was just stunned i was like did i just hear what i thought i heard you know and and i raced back there and you know she had shot herself oh my gosh so I'm sure the next little while was probably a blur. Called 911. Yeah, called 911. Uh, again, I don't know how long, but it seemed pretty quick. There was police there and, you know, paramedics there and everybody else. And they kicked me out of the room and 
then, you know, there's a whole apartment was filled with, you know, emergency, you know, first responder kind of people. And Right, right. And at some point, I know in your book, you mentioned that you were telling them that she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? she was seven months pregnant. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So your concern was both for her, but also for the baby. Yeah. And I, I, I remember at some point, I just kind of asked, again, I don't know how much time had passed here. You know, I don't mm-hmm. I think it was fairly quick, though. I kind of asked if she was going to be okay. And uh, I asked one of the officers that was standing there, is she going to be okay? And he's kind of looked at me and said, she's, you know, she's dead, but we're going to try to get her and save the baby, mm-hmm. uh, to get her body to the hospital and save the baby. And I'm just kind of like, what? You know, just kind of, I just don't, again, you know, it's just, I don't quite understand what's going on. And then, yeah. um, you know, and then a few minutes later, her body's gone and, you know, I'm, kind of there in the apartment alone with a a couple of police officers. Wow. My goodness. Walk me through the next few days for you. What was that like? So, um, I think I was, uh, I don't, nothing seemed real to me. It seemed like I was kind of, I don't know, people talk about experiences where they're, they feel like they're watching their own life, you know, kind of, kind of go on. And that's kind of what it was. Um, um, I just kind of, I just felt like, you know, this wasn't really real. This was all just some kind of movie or something like that. Um, but a lot of my time and attention at this point was focused on our daughter, Hope, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, where I was, um, you know, I, I got to see her uh, soon after she was uh, delivered, I guess is the right word. Um, and then they flew her over to Primary Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at that point, it was just going down and seeing her every day. So that was kind of my... You know, it was pretty much the time after that. It was spending all the time at the hospital. So there really wasn't a lot of time to process or really think about what was going on. As so I'd get up early, go to the hospital, stay there till I come home. And, and I was go, you know, go back to my uh, parents' house is where I was staying. And it was just, I don't know, that was life for about the next nine days. Wow. My goodness. And tell us about your sweet baby, Hope. So Hope was... Uh, a beautiful baby. She was very small, though. I remember the first time I saw her. Um, was, I think I think that's the first time I'd actually seen a premature kind of baby thing, and mm-hmm. and I was just surprised. I mean, she looked like a baby, you know. You know, had the five fingers and or uh, the ten fingers, ten toes, you know, fully developed, but just small. Mm-hmm. And uh, she did look like Krista, though. Um, had, her face looked just like Krista, uh, but she had a mop of brown hair like I have instead of the blonde hair that uh, Krista had. But pretty much like a small. Thing of Krista, but I just remember thinking how small she was and, uh, you know, just kind of hoping and praying that she would survive. Yeah. And what did the doctors talk you through while you were at the hospital then? So um, pretty much from the get-go, the doctors weren't very optimistic um, about about her chances of survival. Um, um, she had been deprived of oxygen for a while uh, mm. while they got, you know, you know, from the time Krista died till they got her to the hospital. Um um, and so um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of brain damage or blood on the brain, I guess is is what it was. And uh, and we went through a series of X-rays and stuff, and they were just kind of you know the you know they were not optimistic that anything was going to happen. Uh, I think they tried to be very gentle about it, but they were kind of like you know we don't think you know she's going to survive. And I think after a while, I think after about a week, it became pretty apparent to me that if she was going to survive, it was only going to be with the hope of life support. It wasn't going to be, she was, she wasn't going to pull out of this. Right. Oh my goodness. So you were reeling from your wife's death and now you're dealing with the possibility of your sweet baby's death. Um, you talk in your book about having to make that decision and how it was so different than watching it in movies of people, you know, making that decision. Talk me through what you were thinking at that time. 
I think it was, uh, well, it was the hardest decision I've ever made. Uh, even though I knew it was the right thing to do, it was still hard. Yeah. And uh, I think, and I just, I don't, I don't know, I think at some level I felt it was the right thing to do, but it was just, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, it was just kind of, I just kind of realized that it wasn't really a life she was going to have as she was hooked up to machines the entire time. You know, if a machine's helping you breathe, if a machine's, uh, um, you know, you know, if you got to be basically monitored 24-7 in order to survive, that to me, that wasn't a life. And so, um, I guess it came down to that she could have a better life in the next life. And so that's kind of what it came down to. Yeah, I remember reading your book about this decision and just my heart was just broken as you had to make this decision about your sweet baby Hope. And you also described praying about the decision. Mm -hmm. And why don't you talk me through that experience? Um, yeah, I think I think it was probably it was probably the first time I'd actually prayed since Krista died, actually, because I was just I don't know so much going on and just a million different feelings going through. Um, yeah, I just you know I had to um, I prayed about it um, and I just had this you know just I don't know I guess a peaceful feeling I guess you could describe it as just a feeling that you know that you know that this is something that that it, it was okay to do. Mm. And so I guess enough comfort there um, for me to uh, to feel like that even though, again, it was a hard decision and it was just a decision I didn't want to make. But um, again, it was the right decision and it was probably the best for her. Yeah. And gosh, just trusting God with that. Holy cow. Very, very challenging. Very, very difficult. Talk to me about the next few months of recovery after and the grief that you were going through. Yeah, I think those were, um, I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, you know, describe it. It was, it, it was awful because um, I felt like I had lost everything. I mean, at least anything that was really important. I mean, I still have my job and they were very patient with me at my job because, mm -hmm. you know, I was just kind of out of it for a while. Uh, but, you know, I had my job, but it was like, you know, I didn't have anything else. I mean, you know, I still had my family. I still had, you know, my mom and my dad and brothers and sisters and stuff, but it was just different. It was, you know, now I was going home and it was just me and it was awful and I hated it. And it was, it was, I don't know. I just, I mean, I'd wake up in the morning and the hardest part of the, the there were two hard parts of the day. One was getting up in the morning. One was going to bed at night mm -hmm. and I'd wake up in the morning and I would stare at the ceiling and I would just kind of have to talk myself out of bed because um, I knew it would be really easy to stay in bed and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, Colin's sick or whatever I wanted to do at work. And, but I had to talk myself out of bed every morning. And I'd already been running before this. I'd been running for maybe a little over a year before, uh, uh, before this happened. But I would just talk myself out of bed every morning and realize that if I didn't, and I, at, some, at some level, some kind of internal level, I knew that if I didn't get out of bed, I was in trouble mm -hmm. and I knew that if I wasn't doing something um, and trying to keep myself busy that I was going to be in some, you know, I don't know, 
depressed or something, but I, I knew it was a really dark path. And so I would force myself out of bed every morning and I would go running. But it, but it, sometimes it was this conversation with, you know, I'd have with myself, I'd stare at the ceilings, like get out of bed. I don't want to get out of bed, you know, mm-hmm. get out of bed. I'm not getting out of bed. And I'd kind of have this, you know, sometimes it would go on for five or 10 minutes and then I'd finally get out of bed um, and go run and stuff like that. Um, and then the other hard time was just going to bed because again, you know, it's it's like if I was lying there in bed, all I was dwelling on was sad things and depressing things. And mm-hmm. and so um, I was doing stuff like I was watching way too much TV. I was doing as, as much stuff as I could after I got home just to exhaust me mentally. So by the time I went to bed, it was like I would fall right asleep. Right. And so it was this game that I would play with myself, you know, get up in the morning and then go through, you know, I'd go through work and everything fine. But then, you know, the last couple hours of the day would be, you know, you know, I guess if, if it was today, I'd be playing on my phone for hours and hours on end just to get mm-hmm. something to distract me. But I was watching TV and then just until I was seriously mentally exhausted where I couldn't keep my eyes open and then, and then I'd go to bed. So that was kind of my life for maybe three months after Krista died. Wow. Is that advice that you share now with others who are struggling with grief after the death of a loved one to maybe try to keep yourself busy and do normal things like running yeah. What do you say to people? Yeah, I, yeah, I tell them to keep busy and to come up with some kind of routine. Um, that's really the best thing that the, the that they can do because, um, I mean, and I, and I think anyone who's you know who's lost like a spouse or a, a child will just tell you that the worst thing you can do is do nothing. Anyone who's kind of pulled themselves out of it, they'll all say the worst thing you can do is do nothing. So, mm. you know, I advise, you know, when I, you know, what, when I talk like to uh, widowers who are trying to figure it out, I'm telling them, well, let's go through, you know, what are some things that you can do in the morning? You know, well, I'm not doing anything. Okay, well, what's something you can be doing in the morning, right? You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of it depends on their age and circumstances. It's a little bit easier if they have a, have a job to go to, but sometimes I'll talk to older people who maybe don't have a job, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, they have have less of a less of a reason to get up and get going and so it's coming up with those those just it's really kind of coming up with a schedule you know it's kind of like mm-hmm. being a kid again in the sense how your parents kind of give you a, a schedule you know like lunches at this time and mm-hmm. you know then it's nap time and then, you mm-hmm. know you're going to do all this stuff it's, it, it's the same kind of uh, principle just kind of really structuring your life and i think and really the advantage of that is really kind of i don't know if it really gives your life a purpose again, but it, but it just gives you something to look forward to, little chunks to look forward to. Okay, you know, okay, now I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to. Mm-hmm. It's Wednesday night, so whatever. There's um, there's a civic group I'm part of, and they have a meeting at seven o'clock. I'm going to go to that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, I have dinner at this time, or I'm doing this, and so it's just it's just to give you those little kind of baby steps, so you can kind of make it through the, to the end of the day, and then you get back to the beginning of the next day, and you start over. That's really kind of the uh, purpose of coming up with some kind of schedule. That makes sense, and and it also. So in a way, if you pause and think about it, if you have um, a calendar, something on the calendar, um, it's one less decision you kind of have to make Um, because you're like, okay, that's already there. And you don't have to make the decision, well, what am I going to do today? Because it's already there, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like you can wake up and, okay, you know, here's the whatever five things I've got to do today, right? You know, it's whatever. It's Thursday. I'm going to go shopping for groceries. This is the Mm -hmm. time that I do it. So it's it's finding, you know, just kind of, again, a routine like that. And, um, again, if you can find a routine, that's not going to solve your problems, you know, in the the sense that it's going to make you happy. But it kind of stops you from spiraling down any deeper is really what it does. So Mm -hmm. you're you're just kind of floating at that point. But I think, you know, it takes some time to kind of process and kind of move through things. And so as long as you have a schedule and, again, you know, 
uh, you know, I think the, I think the hardest time for me was uh, weekends because, <laughs> you know, I didn't have the job. Oh, right. So yes. it was like Saturday morning I'd wake up and it's like, I don't have a job to go to. So, you know, mm. I'd get up and do longer runs, but still, you know, I'd get, you know, I'd be done at whatever, seven, eight o'clock in the morning and I've got 12, 14 hours to kill. It's like, what am I going to do? You know? So it was, mm. you know, so actually I packed my Saturdays with a lot of errands, you know, mm-hmm. I would you know, whatever shopping and gotta get the oil change or whatever it was that I had to do, you know, I would just pack it up with as many errands as I could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you, you were doing these things to keep your mind off a lot of the things. Um, what type of things were you doing to help heal your soul from all of this? Um, um, well, I was going to church mm-hmm. and, um, and I think, and again, I think part of the reason I went, I know you talk to a lot of widowed people and they'll kind of, maybe if they were regular churchgoers, they'll kind of stop a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason I went was going back to that schedule thing, right? It was something mm-hmm. to do on Sunday mornings, right? Mm-hmm. Even if I felt like I really didn't belong there or I, I felt like maybe I shouldn't be there for various reasons. It was, I think it was a schedule thing um, for part of it. But uh, at the same time, I think there was part of me that felt that if I was ever going to find any peace or any answers... Um, it wasn't going to be lying in bed doing nothing, you know, it wasn't going to be staying at home that maybe if I was fortunate, maybe I'd find some kind of answers there. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned that you weren't sure that you belonged and there were several other things going through your head. What was going through your head as far as the argument against going to church? I didn't feel, I guess for lack of a better term, I didn't feel like I was worthy to be there. Hmm. And why is that? Um, so, uh, because I had ignored uh, certain promptings or feelings uh, the, uh, before in the basically the 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 twenty four hours leading up to Krista's death, I had ignored certain promptings and feelings, and I felt that if I had followed those feelings, that she wouldn't be dead, and mm. so that I just wasn't worthy to be there because, you know, God or whatever had tried to maybe change that path and I had just kind of ignored it. Mm. And so that's, and I just, you know, it was, it was, it was that feeling of not being worthy or not feeling like, uh, um, that I deserved to be there. Mm. Did you ever approach God and talk to him about those feelings and ask him if he still loved you? eventually <laughs> it took a long time um it took a long time i think because uh, um again it was just you know i just felt like you know it's i don't, I don't know it, you know i guess the best way i can describe it it's like um if you have kids and you know that you know and your kids know um that they've done something that has disappointed you right mm-hmm. and you know they know it <laughs> I guess I felt like that kid, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, yeah, you told me not to do this and I did it anyway. And, but, you know, I think you think of that, you know, of that kid, you know, if it's your kid that's done it, you still love your kid. You still love your kid, right? You still, maybe you're disappointed in him, but you still love him. And so, um, I guess that's, I guess that's really what it was. It was, um, it was that feeling of, feeling like I disappointed somebody and uh, I don't know, but 
maybe not, maybe, you know, I didn't quite have the whole, you know, the whole parent aspect at the time, you know, I really, even though I was kind of a, you know, a dad technically, you know, hope really hadn't disappointed me or anything, you know, mm-hmm. but I think it was, I think if that, if something like that happened now, I'd have a, a, a different perspective because I have kids yeah. and, um, and, you know, there's been times where they know they've disappointed me and I still wrap my arms around them and tell them that I love them. If I, if I had that perspective 18 years ago, maybe I would have come through it a little bit better, you know, maybe not been, not have been so uh, distant, but because I didn't have that real perspective, I just felt like, you know, I'd blown it and I'm just coming to church, even though I probably shouldn't be here anyway. Mm. Yeah. But this is, this helps us understand, especially if we have loved ones who are struggling um, with a similar situation, know what's going on in their head without having to ask them and and just you sharing your story is so beautiful and so powerful so when when were you finally able to pray and talk to god about all that i think it actually came um of all things it came after i started dating again and falling in love again that was really that's really when it i really felt that i could do it and it really came because again had certain promptings um about somebody that was going to church and, mm-hmm. you know, to ask them out and to, you know, to take some steps with them. And, and I think once I kind of put the pieces together and realized that, you know, that even though I had made a mistake, um, even though, um, perhaps I felt unworthy, um, of God's love that, that he was still willing to guide me and direct me. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I kind of realized that, um, I kind of realized that, Hey, you know, like, I don't know, maybe I, he's going to give me a second chance, um, just in general, you know, that, that I, I wasn't that far gone, so to speak. And so, um, you know, so by doing certain things by, you know, you know, by putting promptings in my way that, um, uh, you know, I was able to actually fall in love again and do things. But again, you know, just, just that re that realization that he was still going to talk to me and care about me. I think that's what really turned it for me. That's interesting. So would, would your advice then be to people who are going through something similar that God still loves you? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. God does love you. And even if you don't feel it or maybe don't think he does, um, I, you know, you know, he does. And, um, I think it's just trying to reach a point in your life or, uh, where you can, uh, maybe open your mind up to it or o- open your heart up to it. Cause it's, it's not him that's, you know, it's putting those roadblocks up. It's us. It's me. You're right. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was me that was putting those roadblocks up. And, mm-hmm. um, I think if I had, you know, maybe not been, I don't know if prideful is the right word, but, right. Um, but you know, maybe if I hadn't, maybe if I had just kind of humbled myself a little bit more and realized that, you know, I was still valued and I was still loved that, uh, you know, instead of thinking that I was not, then, uh, then maybe I would have realized that earlier. So maybe just being more gentle with yourself Yeah. and realizing, shoot, we all make mistakes. Some of them are bigger than others, but to give yourself a little grace, a little mercy if, if you're feeling all this guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's actually really, really good advice. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, would you mind talking to us about um, falling in love again and the advice that you now give to other widowers? I'd love to. How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm? 
What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus diagnosis survival guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The diagnosis survival guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. I'm interviewing Abel Keough about losing his wife, Krista, and his baby, Hope, and then falling in love again. So, Abel, tell me about meeting your wife, Juliana, and how this plays into your role as a widower coach now. Yeah, so I uh, I met Juliana at church, mm-hmm. the, you know, the very place I didn't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yeah, we were in kind of a, a, the a church we attended was very uh, family centric, mostly married couples or even maybe some em- empty nesters. And then there was me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's part, an, a, another reason I really didn't feel like I fit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some point um, I noticed uh, there was this woman about my age who seemed to be sitting by herself. And I remember like once she kind of walked past me, I was sitting on the back row there and she walked past me and I just kind of felt this real electric feeling as she passed and i remember asking the person next to me he's like do you know who that is and he's like yeah that's juliana and you know he kind of told me a little bit about her and you know so i started keeping my eye on her a little bit i was thinking like well she's beautiful and you know she was a college graduate she had her own job I'm thinking like man she sounds pretty successful and i'm thinking like there's no way she doesn't have a boyfriend you know she <laughs> has to have a boyfriend so i played this like watching game i want to say for at least probably a month and a half, two months, where I would just kind of watch. I'd see if she'd come to church every Sunday, and she would. And she'd usually sit by herself. And, you know, I was looking, you know, she had a wedding ring on her hand. You know, mm-hmm. did she come with anybody? And she never came with anybody. Didn't see a ring. And uh, finally, I was like, you know, I've got to find a way to ask her out. Yeah. And I was just kind of a little scared and nervous because, you know, I only lost my wife like six months ago. Yeah. You know, how is this going to go? How is this? How is this going to play out? Yeah. And um, um, but anyway, so something I would call a miracle happened. So um, one Sunday I was and it, it was weird. You know, you know, we talked earlier about how, you know, I had to fill the void, you know, find things to do. And on Sunday mornings for church, she was all I could think about. It was really weird. It was mm. all, all I could do was think about her and is she going to come to church you know is she going to bring anybody with her is she going to have a ring on her finger this time it's just Mm -hmm. you know i kept trying to think you know it's going to be trying to you know find any reason i could not to you know even though i wanted to really ask her out not to ask her out you know Mm -hmm. and so um anyway i went out to the uh, front porch and got the paper and went straight to the uh, sports page and there's her picture right on the front of the sports page really yeah and she had just won the previous day she had won the ogden marathon and oh and, my. I, and I'm just like and I've I was it was just one of those experiences like no that's not her this can't be her and I'm like nope that's her and then I read the little caption on the photo and it says you know Juliana Taylor is whatever crosses the finish line at the Ogden Marathon and I'm just like 
I'm like, you know, that even makes her more amazing than she already was in my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, she had just won a marathon, uh, but it gave me an idea. And I was like, well, I was like, I like to run. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm putting run in air quotes here compared to what she was doing. But, uh, um, but I thought, well, maybe what I can do on a first date is I can ask her out and we can go running together after work mm. one day. So um, I finally, so that Sunday I got up the courage. I was like, okay, you know. I don't have any excuse at this point. <laughs> God literally handed yes. you the paper with her picture on yeah. it with the idea, right? Yeah, so I was like, so, um, so I went and uh, we had a conversation. I said, hey, you know, I, I congratulated her on running the marathon. She kind of turned red and she's very determined, but at the same time, she's very kind of private and shy and she didn't like the idea of everybody knowing that she had won this race or something mm -hmm. like that. And, um, so, but I went, I congratulated on her and I said, Hey, well, I run too. Would you like to go running one day? And she's like, okay, sure. Yeah, we can go running. And so, uh, we, you know, we planned a date for that Friday where she'd come over to my house and I don't know, we'd run like four miles. And that was, that was the beginning of our first date. Well, there you go. That's awesome. So you, you got up the nerve and you finally <laughs> asked her. <laughs> So this is actually good for us to know that widowers, it takes a lot of courage to ask somebody out after. Yeah, we have a lot of doubts, especially so most widowers will start dating within the first year. And most of the time, it's a lot sooner than that. I mean, it's within weeks or you know, two, three months, they're out dating again. And I actually wanted to date earlier, um, like two or three months after Krista died, I had this desire to date again. And I kept telling myself, what's wrong with you? You know, you're just mad at her. I kind of kept talking myself out of it. So it was about five months after she died that I actually started going online and, you know, dating again and having all those awkward moments that people have when they uh, date again. So I think one of the things that they, you know, that they're worried about and rightfully worried about is just, you know, my wife's only been dead. In my case, it was like six months. Mm -hmm. Why are you, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. why are you dating again? You know, mm -hmm. why, why are you, you know, did you not love your wife? You know, you can think all these uh, questions that are going through uh, people's heads. And, um, and the reality is, is I, that honestly, it's just the way men are wired. They're mm -hmm. just wired to go out there and date again. Now that causes problems because most of them are dating uh, before they're really emotionally ready for a committed relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, when I talk to uh, widowers, I say, look, if you want to date, go date. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just kind of advise them not to get into a serious relationship. You know, I tell them to go out, however you're meeting people, if you want to do it the easy way, just go online. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, go out with three or four different women over a period of whatever, three, four, five weeks. It's just so you can kind of, you can kind of reorient to, you know, to a dating again, because odds are it's changed a lot since, yeah. you know, since, you know, since you dated your wife and mm -hmm. were engaged to your wife, it's changed a lot. Um, not only with technology, but just, you know, what, you know, what people are expecting. So I say, just go out on, you know, three or four different dates. Don't have any expectation of, of any kind of commitment or anything like that. Just go out. And the whole purpose of this is for you to decide, is this something you really want to do? And also it exposes you to a bunch of different personalities and different people because right now the perfect woman in your head is your late wife. Right. And, and though she was wonderful and perfect, you can't compare these other people to her. You got to realize they're individuals and you've got to learn that there's just a, there's a broad set of personalities and interests out there that you haven't been exposed to or not you know in a, in a dating scene anyway you haven't been exposed to and the best thing you can do is just kind of you know ground yourself and realize okay it's different these people are different i've got to, you know it, it kind of helps you set expectations i think a little bit better mm, that's actually really smart so how quickly were you able to i guess heal and then um feel like you were at the point where you could commit to 
Juliana. Well, so on our second date, um, I knew I could marry her, which is really, really? weird because she was not, she was, I mean, she was having a hard time. She's like, you're a widower. And she was having huge issues with that. Yeah. And I didn't tell her that there was no way I was telling her that on the second date. But I realized after I got home after the second date, I was like, I can totally marry her and spend the rest of my life with her. Really? And which didn't make a lot of sense to me because again, you know, I'd just been widowed six months. I was like, why am I feeling this way about somebody? Um, so I knew pretty quick and um but i was really hesitant to you know to even tell her that because she was going on dates but she you know had all kinds of issues you know like is he ready to move on you know is mm -hmm. he really ready to open his heart am i just here as a placeholder or something you know she has all mm -hmm. these you know invalid concerns by the way I, I, if you're dating a widower and have those concerns yes you should you you should go slow and you should have you know you should have concerns so i realized it pretty quick and i realized it was really up to her to kind of make peace with things and have her be okay with it. And I, you know, and, and we kept dating and every date I kept thinking, okay, the euphoria for me is going to wear off or I'm going to think that, okay, now I've seen the real Julie and mm -hmm. I don't love her as much, you know, mm -hmm. and it never happened. It, mm -hmm. it, it just never happened. I mean, hmm. the more time we spent together, uh, the more time I wanted to spend with her. In some ways it was, you know, I had all this empty time and, it's, you know, instead of trying to d distract myself and think of things, I could just think about her and I was like, oh, I'm going to see her in an hour. And so like one of the things we did is and she was by far a faster runner than me you know i say we had, <laughs> i say we had this uh, first date she actually went on a training run that morning because oh, uh, she because she's like there's no way he's running as fast as i am so we ran so she went on a training run that morning it was just a, a short one and then she went on a quote-unquote run with me <laughs> which is probably more like this is like a slow jog or something like that but um but but eventually things reached the point where you know you know we started talking more and she's like well you know i asked her when she ran she got up at 5 a.m and went running every morning Wow. And so, you know, I'm I was like, oh, it's kind of dark. Do you want someone to run with you? You know, uh -huh. like me. <laughs> and so she's just kind of like, yeah, you, she, she's like, you can come run with me, but you need to know I'm training for my next marathon and I'm not going to slow down for you. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was pretty much it. You know, she and, wasn't going to coddle you, man. <laughs> yeah. She, and I was just like, I was like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, the, I'm doing the typical guy thing. I'm like, oh, that's not a big deal. You know, I'll totally keep up with you. And uh -huh. for our first early morning run together, I got there right at five and she was ready to go and she, it was like this eight mile run i think that at that time i had never run eight miles before oh, <laughs> and she's just like and you know she you know she kind of explained the course and i was like okay cool i'm just thinking like you know i'll keep up with her and i did for about two miles i kept up with her pretty good and then and then she started pulling away and i just kept dropping back and back and it's dark you know it's 5 a.m it's still dark and eventually it's like <laughs> i hope i know I, I i can kind of see her and i'm like i'm hoping you know just i'm just kind of following her around and finally you know i lost sight of her and so i'm just running hoping like i'm going the right direction <laughs> and i get back you know we circle back to her apartment and she's there waiting for me oh there you go I don't know how long she'd been waiting <laughs> maybe a good 15 minutes or something but she was waiting for me and um and then yeah we just kept doing that every morning i'd get up and i'd get up before five and you know get dressed real quick and run run over to her place and i'd go on these training runs with her and it wasn't until the very end i could actually keep up keep up with her she never waited for me she was just like i'm just going and this is the pace i'm running see ya <laughs> she uh -huh. would just go. yeah very good do you think that's also symbolic of you catching up um emotionally being able to commit maybe yeah i yeah i think so it's not easy to necessarily fall in love again um, because when you're a widower, you've got to take those feelings you have for your late spouse and you've got to put them in a special place. And it's not something you just, you just don't flip a switch and do that. It takes work. 
it takes time because you've got to make this new person number one. And I think it was good for me to get up before five every morning and drive over to her place and go running with her because it, it was forcing me uh, to make that a commitment and every and every morning I could get up and do that was just you know it just made it a little bit easier to again you know to still have love for Krista but kind of put that in a special place because I was I was really working and sacrificing to show Julie um, just how much I you know that I wanted to be with her you know Mm -hmm. and Julie and Julie will tell you now if you were to uh, talk to her that she had other boyfriends and stuff that she had that would go running with her and they drop out after a week Mm -hmm. and I was the only person that showed you know she didn't expect me to last a week she's thinking like okay whatever Abel show up Mm -hmm. I'll invite you to come because you know three days later you're gonna be you're you're gonna be calling me up saying you aren't going but I was there every morning Mm -hmm. and she said I was the only person that tried to run with her that was there every morning even even though she was kicking my butt on these runs (laughs) I was there every every morning ready to go running with her and I think that also kind of showed her that I was willing to you know do what it took to make her number one and you know that I wasn't just talking the talk that I was going to get up and kill my legs every morning you know and throw up I can't tell you how many times she was running so fast I have a dry heave on the side of the road I can't tell you how many times I did that trying to keep up with her (laughs) wow so sacrifice yeah you were willing to go the distance yeah well and that's and that's part of the thing that widowers uh, you know when I talk to women who are dating widowers Mm -hmm. um, because you know I coach them too is you know they always say well how do I know he's in love with me and I'll tell him well he'll sacrifice for you you know Mm -hmm. men don't sacrifice for women they don't love it's easy for a guy to say you know I'll take you out to a nice dinner or we can do, you know, do fun things together. But how many of those guys are actually going to sacrifice for you and put in the necessary work to show that they actually care for you? Mm. And if you can look at it that way, that's how you know really quick if a widower is ready to actually move on or not. Interesting. I can see how that would be true. I really can. So when did you know you were finally ready to get remarried? Um. Julie and I had discussed it, at least getting married quite a bit. Uh, I was really gung-ho about it. And um, she was like, we got to wait at least a year. <laughs> you know, I was, if she goes, if you're going to ask me to marry me, at least wait until after the year anniversary date of Chris's death. You know, at the very right. least, wait, which was, I didn't want to do it. But again, that sacrifice thing was like, fine. You know, if that's going to make you comfortable and make you feel better about things, I'll wait. Um, and so, you know, Julie had finally reached a point where, um, again, not 100% ready for it, but mostly ready, you know, thinking that, you know, that this could work. So I kind of found that peace, but I had been kind of praying and um, just needing some some peace and closure with Krista mm-hmm. uh, because um, even though I was falling in love again and kind of moving on with my life, I really still hadn't fully forg- forgiven myself. And I didn't know, uh, you know, had, you know, had Krista forgiven me? I mean, I just had all these questions about forgiveness and, you know, was she mad at me? And there was times that I was still mad at her, you know, I, yeah. you know, where I was still angry at her. I remember it was fall cause there was colorful leaves outside and I was, you know, cleaning up the uh, kitchen. I was alone in the house. I, was, I just suddenly, uh, I just had this really incredible, peaceful feeling come over me. It was just this, this wonderful, beautiful feeling. You know, that was the moment where I realized that everything was cool, you know, that, um, that, you know, wherever Krista was, things were good with her and she wasn't mad at me. I think at that point I stopped being mad at myself. And I think at that point I realized, you know, that God was okay with things. And just from there, I just knew that, okay, you know, I've got it, you know, that Mm -hmm. things are good, but you know, I make it sound like it was just something that just happened and it didn't. It took a lot of work to get there. 
Yeah. You know, you know, you're hearing the very the very condensed version. You're not, you know, seeing me just as I'm driving to work or whatever, just you know, praying or thinking or just figuring out how am I going to do this? You know, because I knew that I couldn't marry Julie if I was still mad at Krista. I yeah. knew that that wasn't going to work. You know, and I knew I couldn't marry Julie if I was still mad at myself. So those were things I kind of had to overcome and at least be at be at peace with them, mm-hmm. even if they weren't resolved. At least had to be some kind, at some kind of peaceful resolution with it. Yeah. Um, and at that point, we had already been discussing marriage, but at that point, I felt really good about it. Um, I felt that that I could move forward and things were going to be fine, and I wouldn't feel guilty about moving forward, um, and I wouldn't feel you know I wouldn't worry. I didn't have to worry about Krista anymore, and just things were going to be okay. Isn't that amazing? It's truly a gift from God then that that peace that he gave you that helped you realize that it was all going to be okay and that she forgave you and you forgave her and Mm -hmm. we can now move on. That is, that is beautiful. What advice then do you give to widowers who are struggling at this point? Uh, You've talked about the importance of forgiving themselves and forgiving their spouse, um, being open to second chances, maybe keeping those communication lines open with God. Um, What else do you tell widowers who are struggling? So I think I would talk to widowers. Um, One of the pieces of advice I'd give give them is to find um, is to have some male support. So, uh, and that's not something that we do very, very good at. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it's very different when women lose a spouse. Um, not only do they tend to wait f- till they're kind of emotionally put together before they uh, start dating again. Um, you know, they have friends that they have sisters, moms, best friends, whatever, you know, that, you know, the, that they can go to and they can talk to and they can, I don't know, you know, you know, talk about it and do whatever it is that they need to do. Right. 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 Um, and with men, it's, you know, it, it isn't like you just walk up to your best friend and man, I'm so sad, you know, that guys yeah. don't work that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of times too, the issue is, is that, um, you know, uh, the man's emotional support a lot of times is his wife and his wife's dead. You know, mm-hmm. if he, if he's had a hard day at work, he comes home and he, you know, had a crappy day at work and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, or, or whatever, you know, whatever's going on in his life, it's usually his wife he confides in. It's not his friends. And, he, you know, they may do that to some degree, but at least with a lot of the widowers I talk to, they don't really have a strong male support network. And so, you know, so something I advise them to do is like, well, are there men you can talk to? Do you have a father? You know, do you have a brother? Uh, do you have somebody, you know, whatever that you go hunting with or, you know, you know, who are some male people in your life and and the purpose isn't necessarily to go out there and have a discussion about feelings because that's not the way that men communicate or or uh, men do it but men bond through shared activities uh so one of the things that happened to me is um soon after krista died is i had a friend who lived in phoenix arizona who who invited me down to spend some time with him mm-hmm. and so i spent three or four days down there this was in january so about two months after she died i mean it's like 70 degrees in january mm-hmm. it's all nice oh is this is like this is like the perfect trip and we spent three or four days you know just you know just you know just doing guy things we went hiking we went shooting we saw some movies some blow-up movies or something like that you know where mm-hmm. things were blowing up and um you know we just had you know you know we went he you know he was a runner too we went running in the morning we just had all these kind of fun things that you know that we did and there was 20 minutes of this three or four day trip where we talked about krista and i told him what happened he was the first person i actually told that i had ignored these promptings and stuff i had never told anybody mm-hmm. i hadn't told anybody at that point it was like this big deep dark secret and at some point during the trip we had this conversation and we talked 
And that's all we said about it. And, and that is exactly what I needed. And it wasn't, you know, it was good for him to know and it was good for me to get it out there. But the point was, it wasn't that I talked to him for 20 minutes. It was that we spent this time just doing stuff together. And that was, you know, I tell him now every time I, you know, you know, when it comes up, I tell him that that trip saved me. That trip literally saved me to have somebody just to go do stuff with mm-hmm. and to feel like normal again. So I tell these uh, widowers is, is, you know, is, is there somebody you know, a family member or somebody that you can just spend time with. And it doesn't have to, again, it doesn't have to be every day for hours on end, but, you know, is there a weekend where you guys can go camping or something like that? Um, or, you know, whatever it is that you like to do, I try to figure out what it is they like to do and you have people who like to do this with you and can you go do it? And the point of it isn't, again, if you talk about it, it's fine because it might come up. But it, the point is, is you're doing something where you can feel feel uh, normal and have that, uh, have that, I don't know, have that shared activity again that you, that you've kind of missed out on, if that Mm. makes sense. Yes. And I guess my, my, my other advice to him, um, is to listen to, uh, gut feelings. And this is actually for not only for uh, widowers, but those who date them. Um, but like with, uh, widowers, they, you know, I've talked to them where they just say, well, I'm in this relationship and I just don't feel it's right. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. okay, let's talk about this. Why don't you feel it's right? And eventually when, it, if you boil it down, it comes to, they, they say, well, I can't really say what's wrong with it, but I feel like it's wrong. I'm like, okay, maybe we should listen to our gut here. You know, mm-hmm. maybe your gut's really trying to, uh, to uh, tell you that you shouldn't, this, is, this isn't the right, the right relationship. Or when I'm coaching women who are with widowers, they, you know, they're like, well, I feel like a replacement or I feel like I'm competing with a ghost. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, why aren't we listening to our gut feeling here? There's a reason you're feeling that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, um, so like before Julie and I uh, got serious, I was in a, a somewhat serious long distance relationship and it, it never felt right. Right. Mm. The relationship never felt right. And I just thought, well, it's cause I'm recently widowed. You know, I kept making all these excuses in my head. I'm recently widowed. I'm angry at Krista. No one, you know, she's obviously different than Krista. So how can, you know, how can I feel the same about somebody? And really what it was is my gut saying, this is the wrong relationship. You shouldn't be in this relationship. And, mm-hmm. it, but I'm kind of glad I had that experience because as soon as I was with Julie, and I didn't have any of those feelings. I just kind of realized, you know, it, it was a good, it was a really good contrast for me. I could actually say it was actually good because I knew that I really helped solidify that Julie was the right relationship for me. So, you know, for widowers out there, it's like, you know, they, it always comes up. They always ask, well, how do I know when you met the right person? I'm like, you just know. Mm. You know, it's like you. It's like you know. It's usually it's like, did you have a great relationship with your wife? Yeah. How did you know she was the one? They always just say, "Well, I just knew." Yeah. So yeah. At, at some point, they just knew. It's like it's no different the second time around. You'll just know. Mm. So if your gut's telling you that this relationship is wrong, then it's wrong. So mm-hmm. listen to it. You know. You know. Hone that. Hone that uh, instinct because otherwise you're you're just wasting time in a relationship that's not going to go anywhere and. You know where you, where you could be with somebody else or somebody that's that's you know a a better fit for you. Wow, that's fantastic advice. Let me ask you this: in and through all of this, did you ever have a Bible verse that became especially meaningful to you? I did. Yeah, it's uh, John fourteen twenty six twenty seven. It's uh, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So I think that just speaks to me about, isn't just losing a spouse, but as we go through hard things, that we can find peace. 
but it's not going to be the way that the world defines peace. It's finding that inner peace and finding that, that sure knowledge that you're doing the right thing and that, you know, that you're on the right path. And I think once you have that peace, um, then all those other cares and worries you have just go away. That's no, that's beautiful. And you talked about feeling that peace. I loved one of the quotes in your book and I have to share it. This is from Abel's book, Room for Two. He said, personal and spiritual development doesn't come when life is good and unchallenging. It's the hard times, the ones when we are forced to wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other when the real growth occurs. I was learning that difficult times helped me appreciate the sweet ones. And if I let them, these trying moments would teach me what was truly important. So what was truly important, Abel? in the long run family my faith that's <laughs> that's what's important that really is it's i mean that's really what it is right there it's family and faith and knowing that you know i could have a second chance mm. i mean that nothing else mattered yeah it was being able to have that second chance to have a family have that second chance with god mm. having both of those things just um you know, I just realized that, you know, we have lots of cares and concerns and other stuff, but it's really put things into perspective because, you know, when I have hard times now, um, all I got to do is think back, you know, to what life was like once I lost Christian hope and I realized, hey, I got through that, <laughs> you know, this is, yeah. this is nothing compared to what I went through and it just kind of puts everything in perspective and uh, as long as I have, I have Julie and, and I have my, you know, I have, I have my faith in God, then whatever, throw it at me. No, with God, we really can get through just about anything. We gotta, but we gotta let, keep that uh, communication line. Mm -hmm. open to him. There was one other quote that I loved from your book. It said, one thing I had learned over the last months was moving on isn't forgetting about the past, but knowing when to remember it. I needed to do my best to let those who are with me know how much I love them instead of dwelling on the past. Talk to me briefly about that balance between forgetting and remembering and moving on. Yeah, so I always tell people that you need to focus on the present and the future. That's really what you need to have most of your time and attention focused on. Because if you've ever been with anyone that can't get over something that happened in the past, you just know how awful it is to be with those people. You know, whatever, it's a mistake they made 10 years ago, or they shouldn't have done this and that, and they just dwell on it. And and it, it puts them like in this mental prison, right? Where where everything, you know, they can't get they can't get out of this box that they've put themselves in because, you know, everything is defined by the past, right? A mistake that they made. So the second mistake widowers make, I've talked about the uh, first ones, they date too soon, which is, you mm -hmm. know, fine, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead and date too soon. That's okay. <laughs> but the really the big other one is, and this is the hardest one, is um, they, can't, they can't find a special place for the past. And so you have to realize that no one expects you to stop loving your late wife. I still love Krista, mm -hmm. right? I always will. But there's a, and there's a small special place in my heart for Krista and a small special place for hope. 
but 99.9% of my time and attention has to be focused on Julie and my kids because that's my life now, you know, um, that's chapter two. And so, you know, there's times where I'll go back and I can, you know, visit that special place in my heart once in a while. And that's fine. Uh, and usually it lasts about five seconds mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going, then I'm on with my day. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it really is, um, you know, I think the best way I heard it put is, is that, you know, is that you put your 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 feelings for the past in this in a box and you put it on the shelf and you're in this big wonderful house and there's that little part of the house where those where those feelings are and again once in a while you can go to the box you can look in the box there's nothing wrong with that but you can't carry the box around with you you can't you know talk about the box and everything like that it's like you know if you want to have a good future if you want to have a happy life you've got to focus on what you know the blessings that you have now and not what you've lost or the blessings that you had in the past it's about you know focusing on and making the people that are in your life now number one and making them feel know that they love you because they're not always going to be there yeah and that's that's a lesson i had to learn the hard way you know my last you know my last words to, to a crystal it was a fight and how I wish that I had said my last words to her were, I love you. Mm-hmm. Okay. They weren't, but I can't dwell on that. I can't dwell. I, I can't change that. All I can do is build a better present and a better future. And if I focus on those two things and I mean, and I'd say I have, I mean, I have a wonderful family now, you know, I have mm-hmm. Julie and seven kids. Um, you know, I've got, you know, wonderful opportunities. I've got, you know, I've got books that I've published. I mean, I've done all this stuff, but I couldn't have done all these things if I was focused on what I, what I lost all those years ago. Uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's making Julie know that she's number one in my heart right now. And it's doing the things to make her happy and make our marriage work. Um, letting my kids know how much I love them and trying not to get too mad at them, you know, mm-hmm. and letting them know that, you know, you know, that I, uh, I love them because that's what that's what my life is right now. Mm-hmm. It's not what happened 18 years ago. It's what's happening today. Oh, that's fantastic advice. That's beautiful. Are there any final tips that you would like to share before we close? Chapter two can be just as wonderful as chapter one. And we all, we all get second chances at things. It doesn't necessarily have to be relationships, whatever it is, right? We all get second chances at things. And and our second chances can be just as good, if not better, than the first time. So um, do everything you can to make this next chapter um, even better than the previous one. That's beautiful. Now, Abel, you do a lot of online things. Why don't you tell us where people can find you online and how they can connect with you and your advice and find all of that? The best way to find me is to go to my website. It's www.abelkeo.com. That's A-B-E-L-K-E-O-G-H.com. You can find links to my books there. Uh, Schedule a coaching session. You can email me through the site. Everything is right there. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Abel, for being willing to share your beautiful story of hope and for helping us realize that life can and will be better even in Chapter 2. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website. It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes. And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. 
You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode, so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode, you forget what were those great things. So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help bear that burden. Above all else, remember God loves you.